Uh, let's pray before we get real, real started. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to come and, um, and look at the history of your church, um, especially this morning as we look at um, uh, Zwingli and uh, especially Calvin, uh, who did so much to frame Reformed thought and, um, and theology that we, um, that we hold so dear. And Father, I just pray that uh, this morning as we consider these things, um, as, we, as we learn about your church and the history of it, um, that you'll open our minds and our hearts to, to better understand um, your sovereignty, um, your guidance, and your plan for your people um, for all of eternity. And we thank you. Uh, thank you for just the opportunity to be here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so last week we talked about Martin Luther and um, some of the guys who came before him as far as building up to the point at which the 95 Theses are nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, and we have the beginning of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, as it's called, the uh, turning back to the true gospel, the um, turning away from vain ritual and, um, and, and coming back to the belief in faith alone, Christ alone, uh, for salvation. So, this morning, we're moving kind of away from um, Germany, away from Luther, um, and we're looking at a different area of the world, um, mostly Switzerland. Um, and I don't know if anyone knows where it is, but it's kind of more more of a northern part of Europe, not quite as south as Germany and such. So, um, and today we think about chocolates and knives and um, political neutrality, but um, at this time Switzerland was still very much in the kind of the guise of um, we're not really dealing with anybody else's business, we're kind of our own place, um, which made it just perfect soil to receive Reformation. Um, not just theologically Reformed like, we, like we're, we've been talking about, not just what Luther did, but more of the Geronimo style, if you remember him from last week, um, kind of political reform as well, so that we see um, Zwingli and Calvin both kind of implementing not just theological reform in the church, but also reforming the cities that they're in. So they change the way that politics are viewed. They change the interactions between the church and the state. Um, keep in mind at this time that they all believe that the church was still supreme over the state. So we have this idea of separation here in America where there's not, you know, the church isn't above, the state isn't above, it's just separate. And I think for us we would say, well, it'd be great if we could have the church and state separate, but God is the head of both. How often that happens, I don't know. Um, in fact, sometimes I doubt if God is the head of even the church in some places. But um, at this time, the church was pretty much supreme, even in Reformed places, even where this Reformation was happening, they still believed that church was above the state. So, um, looking at Luther, if it were only for Luther and his stubbornness, um, the Reformation probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. Um, it would have been a big thing that happened when he died, it probably would have died out, and the power, the great power of the Catholic Church would have said, oh no, we're taking over again, forget about it, that, that Luther guy was crazy, he's gone now, we're still in charge here, and you can still buy your family out of purgatory with an indulgence, you can still get time taken off, don't worry about what he said, he's wrong. Fortunately for us, um, it wasn't just Luther, and... Um, between 1520 and 1530, roughly, um, the Bible was translated into English, 
French, and German, which was the first time it had been translated since it was translated from the original text to Latin um, in the 300s. So just think about this. Um, suddenly, for over a thousand years, the Bible has been in Latin or in Greek and Hebrew in the original languages. So if you weren't educated, if you couldn't read and speak and understand Latin, you couldn't read the Bible. You had to trust your priest. You had to trust whoever it was who was preaching to you to interpret scripture for you. Otherwise, you had no way to access the Bible yourself. The biggest thing that these reformers, and I know I touched on this last week, the biggest thing for all the reformers was the Bible. We have to get the Bible back into the hands of the church. And not, when I say church, I don't mean the Pope and the cardinals and the church leaders. The church is in the body of Christ, the people who worship, the people who are there serving the community and doing things. That's who the church was for these reformers. And so they had a strong belief in returning back to the scripture. So let's take a look at Zwingli. And um, you see Reformation in Zurich on your outline there. It says 1484 to 1531. And that's the, the years for Zwingli. So you see that he's kind of a contemporary uh, with Martin Luther because you remember he nailed the theses in 1518. So he, Zwingli's happening the same time as Martin Luther, just in a different part of the world. Um, you see, the first thing there is Zwingli's source was the Bible. So um, Zwingli started off life in the priesthood. He was a priest. So he's, he's had a similar background to Luther even, because Luther became a monk. Luther was um, suddenly transformed into... Um, understanding that all the penitence he was trying to, you know, beat out of himself um, to get forgiveness of sins wasn't working, and that the only way to have that forgiveness was through Christ, was through an understanding that it was faith alone in Christ alone, and not all these paying for indulgences, not kissing every step on the march up to the hill where Pontius Pilate's seat was. It, it wasn't any of these works that you could do. Um, Zwingli started off studying. He was in the priesthood. But as he was studying, he came to really enjoy some of the writings of the guys like um, John Huss, um, Wycliffe, um, even Erasmus, who uh, Luther would later have kind of a qualm with Erasmus about the, uh, the bondage of the will. The whole, I don't know if we talked about that last week. I think we did. The bondage of the will was written as a response basically to Erasmus saying, no, no, no. Here's the way that human will and exertion gets you. It doesn't get you anywhere. We can't do it. It's all about Christ. Um, so Zwingli was reading these guys and seeing, hey, wait a second. What the church, what I'm preaching as a priest here in the Catholic Church isn't true, isn't, isn't factual. And um, in 1516, um, which is a year and a little bit before Luther posted his 95 Theses, uh, Zwingli says this. Led by the word and the spirit of God, I saw the need to set aside all these human teachings and learn the doctrine of, the, of God direct from his word. And uh, that was more than just passing emotion because um, Zwingli went on to copy all of the um, epistles in Greek and memorize them. All of them. Uh, so he wasn't just playing around. For him, studying the word truly and understanding the Bible was absolutely key. Um, 
So since the Bible was the supreme word of God and the ultimate authority, it follows logically that when he was preaching, he wasn't just preaching about how to live your life and that kind of thing. Um, Zwingli was one of the first preachers um, to really approach teaching from an exp expository stance, which is how we do our stuff here. He, he preaches through a passage of scripture all the way, chapter by chapter by chapter. Um, he, he believed that what could be better for teaching and, and showing the church the truth than just giving them the word chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, and because of that focus, he was saying a lot of things that the um, higher-ups in the church didn't really care for. Um, and so he, before he could get excommunicated, said, uh, I renounce my salary from the Pope in Rome. I don't want to get paid anymore. Um, and then about a year later, he resigned his office as a priest, so he just quit. Um, but the Zurich City Council, Zurich is in Switzerland, uh, said, whoa, 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 hey, we like you. So they hired him to be the official city preacher. Um, that's an interesting idea. We would never have a city preacher now. But um, anyway, so he was hired as a city preacher, um, and he was hugely popular. The people around loved him. They loved listening to his sermons. Um, it's just kind of the birth of congregationalism in a lot of ways because he kind of took the people and said, hey, come be my, you know, don't just be my followers, but you have decisions too. You can be part of the decision-making process here in, here in our church. Um, and he, he said this, the common man adheres to the gospel, although his superiors want nothing of it. So Zwingli saw the people within his church, the people of, of repentance, of true faith, um, as being more truly grounded in Scripture than the higher-ups in the church. Um, and because of that, he goes on to um, defend himself against the Catholic hierarchy at a um, kind of a town council meeting. Um, at this time, this is where the 67 articles, as you see on your outline, it kind of comes out. Uh, they were basically, uh, he just kind of wrote down his theological differences with Rome. He said, here's where I differ with official Catholic teaching. Here's where I differ. Here's where I differ. Um, and instead of, usually when you have a church meeting, there's like the higher-ups sit there and the guy who's being condemned or being tried stands before them all alone. Well, Zwingli said, eh, I don't think so. So he brings 600 of his church members with him. And so Zwingli stands there with 600 of his members and he says, hey, these 600 guys are a legitimate church council. They're members of my church. They are theologically sound. They, here they are. This is a church council. Um, and <laughs> the Catholic bishop couldn't refute him because this church council of 600 guys, 600 people, stood behind him and backed up every word he said. And so, although they were really upset that he would bring these ordinary Christians in to stand up for him, um, they issued a verdict in his favor. And so... This was the first Zurich uh, disputation, and this is kind of the key moment in Zwingli's Reformation because this vindicated him from the charge of heresy. So he didn't have the fear. He didn't have to run away like Luther did. He didn't have to try to hide and, and kind of stir Reformation from outside because he was declared innocent of heresy because he was vindicated. Um, he really could build a Reformed confession of faith in a reformed congregation right there in Zurich. Um, 
So now we'll move on to kind of his doctrines. Uh, first off, um, of course, just like Luther, he affirmed all the basic core doctrines of the Reformation, of, of well, of the Christian faith, but they had kind of been strayed from by the church at this time. So salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. So those kind of five things lay out for you the basis of all the Reformation's thinkers, um, all the preachers in this time, all about Scripture as the authority and Christ as the as the only one that we should have faith in. Um, in, in particular, he really focused on, and if you read any of his stuff, it's very much about the divide between the Creator and the created. Um, because of that, uh, he saw idolatry as the number one sin in, in the world at that time, uh, especially within the church, because he saw all those rituals and the icons and the everything, you know, relics and things like that as just idols that people were worshiping instead of worshiping the one true God. Um, and let's see, the uh, one scholar says, um, idolatry was thought to be the most fundamental and most heinous sin committed in humanity. For what is idolatry but ascribing to creatures that which is due to the Creator? Um, also along with that, there was a lot of superstition um, that Zwingli saw. And that was kind of, I guess, more linked with the relics and the healing and that sort of thing, where people thought that if you went in and you looked at this relic or you touched this splinter of the cross that you could be healed. Um, and because of that, um, Zwingli did something which ultimately would be not so great for this time period, but he preached heavily against the use of icons, against the artwork and stuff within a church, because he, he kind of said, all these things are taking us away from what we really need to see. We need to look at Christ alone. We need to, to worship God alone and not be concerned with all this statues and beautiful artwork. That's, that's not important. This is distracting us from, from the truth. And so, um, I'll give you another uh, quote from another scholar. He says, Thoughtless prayers, prescribed fast, and bleached cows, and carefully shaved heads of monks, holy days, incense, burning of candles, sprinkling of holy water, nuns' prayers, priest chatter, vigils, masses, and matins, this whole rubbish heap of ceremonials amounted to nothing but tomfoolery. To depend upon them for salvation was like placing ice blocks upon ice blocks. And that was very much core of what Zwingli was saying against these rituals. Um, and he didn't just preach against them. He purged them. If he was in a church, he had it all moved out. He had it stripped down, and the church was basically bare for any of the services that he held within it. Um, and it, it <laughs> another scholar said, they didn't have churches anymore, they had stables. Because basically that's what they did. They, made, they turned it into just as bare as they could get it because they wanted it to be all about the Word and all about God problem arose because of um, a, a group of people called the iconoclast, and I don't know if you've heard of them before, but um, throughout history, these guys had kind of been here and there, and it wasn't, you know, the same group, but the mindset that destroying beautiful things was a good thing for your faith, um, and these people, and Zwingli did not condone this. He wasn't, he was, he just wanted the stuff out of his church, um, but the iconoclast would go about and basically there was a statue in a little alcove on the side of a church, they'd just break it, destroy it. 
if there was a beautiful fresco on a wall within a church, they would tear it to pieces. Um, the iconoclast destroyed a great deal of the artwork, um, the statuary, all those things that were of this time period that were, you know, beautiful works of art were destroyed by the iconoclast, which is, which is sad in some respects, but it shows how serious they were about reform. They were so serious that they would say, I don't care how pretty that statue is. My God means more to me than that statue. Um, but because of it, we lose a lot of the artwork. It's kind of a sad thing, and uh, a lot of that history has been lost to us because of it. Um, next thing, differences with Luther. Um, he agreed with Luther on most things. Obviously, they're both preaching against um, the corruption within the Catholic Church. They're both trying to get back to the true gospel. But, um, for instance, the Lord's Supper. They had a big debate about it, Luther and Zwingli, and pretty much hated each other <laughs> for the rest of their lives because of that debate. Um, Luther was quoted as saying um, that Zwingli was seven times more dangerous than when he was a papist. So... <laughs> Even though he was trying to reform just like Luther was, um, Luther said bad things about him. Zwingli said about him, we should not have been forced to swallow your loathsome stuff. Um, anyway, basically Zwingli thought that um, the Lord's Supper was just a symbol. Just a symbol of or memorial to Christ. Whereas Luther, though he preached against some aspects of transubstantiation as far as like it doesn't actually become it, he believed that Christ was still physically present in the elements. So it's kind of a fine line there between transubstantiation, Luther's idea, and then Zwingli's. But just know, just know that um, Luther believed that Christ was still present in those elements, and Zwingli said, no, 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 it's just a picture, it's just a symbol. Um, next thing is the um, what is kind of permitted or prohibited in church. <sighs> Luther kind of had this idea of, of a, um, well, as we talked last week, if the Bible doesn't say you can't do it, you can do it. It was very much freedom of, of belief. Because we're Christians, if the Bible doesn't tell us no, it's okay. So Luther, within his church, he had pretty paintings. He, had, he made the church beautiful. He used organ music. He loved, Luther loved organ music. Um, as you can tell if you've ever heard like a really good rendition of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's just crazy organ music. Very, It's really cool. Um, but anyway, Zwingli thought that the organ had no place in church. Um, musical instruments at all had no place in church because um, that distracts from truly worshiping. That distracts from the true gospel. Um, and so within the church, um, Zwingli introduced a kind of regulative principle um, which holds that church gatherings should only include those practices mandated by Scripture. Um, prayer, Scripture reading, confessions of faith, singing hymns, preaching the Word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. So basically, instead of the Bible doesn't prohibit it, it's okay, Swingley said, we don't do anything the Bible doesn't prescribe for us. That was a key difference. And then finally, um, they held different opinions on the nature of the two kingdoms. And the two kingdoms are the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, um, as elaborated upon in Augustine's huge book, The City of God, um, which really should have been called A Tale of Two Cities, but I guess somebody had already taken that one. Um, so it arose from basically two fundamental concerns. 
As one scholar puts it, Luther's Reformation was born out of his tortuous quest to answer the question, how can I be saved? Zwingli was more concerned with the social and political implications of reform, so his central question was more like, how can my people be saved? Um, so Zwingli held a very much different view of how the church and state should be. He saw them as being very closely connected. There's a, a strong relationship between the church and the state because it's about the people. Luther said the church and state have nothing to do with each other because the church is all about salvation of the people. The state can do whatever the heck it wants. It has no concern here. So, um, and, and Luther also thought that because of that, a Christian should never go to battle. Um, he believed that Christians had no place holding a sword um, because that was up to the state to control. And he said the church has nothing to do with warfare. Um, part of that was probably a big thing against the Crusades because Luther saw the, the, the badness of the Crusades. And so he said, no, 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 um, that's not for us to do. We don't need to fight. That's for the state. Zwingli, on the other hand, was actually kind of a chaplain of the Swiss Army. Um, so <laughs> he had a very different view of it and thought that, well, the church and the state are right here. We're buddies. I need to do everything I can to defend the state because that's the same as defending the church. Um, and actually, um, Zwingli was killed in battle in 1531. So that's it for any, um, wait, hold on, let's see. I don't want to skip anything. Um, so just kind of recap. Zwingli and Luther agreed on the clarity of the gospel, uh, the power of God's word to bring about reformation. They had their disagreements, but for the most part, the idea, the main core of their quest was reformation of the church. And, and they both did a lot to achieve that goal. Um, Zwingli's followers kind of were in Zurich for a while. Um, they had a lot of influence on the English Protestants, who we're going to talk about later, I think next week. Um, they were also the kind of the ancestors of the Puritans, who we'll talk about later on too. Um, and Zwingli's teachings also came to really influence a young Frenchman named John Calvin, who we'll talk about next. But is there any questions about Zwingli before we move on? All right, cool. All right, uh, John Calvin. Calvin was born in Noyon, France in 1509. So let's consider Calvin the second generation of Reformation, um, where Luther and Zwingli were kind of the forerunners. Uh, Calvin followed in their footsteps and got to kind of ride the coattails and just take what they worked out already and really try to implement it into life. Um, he started off, um, his father wanted him to study theology and go into the priesthood. Um, but he kind of had a falling out with the bishop and decided to go to law school instead. Sounds familiar. Um, it's almost the exact same thing that happened with Luther, only Luther, on his way to law school, had got struck by lightning. So, <laughs> um, but Besides his legal studies, Calvin still said, you know, this theology thing's pretty interesting. And so he, um, he steeped himself in classic works of philosophy. He read everything he could literature-wise, um, he really looked at, um, emphasized kind of a humanistic approach where it was very much about clear thinking, uh, rigorous logic, um, close examination of original text. 
original texts being Scripture. And so here's another place where Calvin, just like the other Reformers, applies his, his philosophical and, you know, school approach to his faith as well. And he says, if I'm studying the original text for this philosophy, if I'm studying this original text for this law idea, then I should probably study the original text for my faith. Um, and since he was well-educated, um, he could obviously read the Bible, um, and he began to study it rigorously. Um, and at some point during his studies, Calvin is recorded um, as saying that he had a rather sudden conversion in which God subdued my heart to teachableness, which is funny because he was a great student, and there was no reason for him to not have been teachable already. But for some reason, Calvin noticed that at some point, God just said, I'm going to teach you something. Um, and he kind of <laughs> became a Protestant. And because of that, after that, uh, King Francis I ordered his arrest for heresy. Obviously, heresy, he's a, re he's a reformer, he's a Protestant. That goes against the church. And so, like Luther, he ran away. Uh, he, f he fled to Switzerland, um, actually a town called Basel, which uh, at this time Basel was kind of a, refu a refugee camp <laughs> for reformers, for Protestants, because they, were, they had that kind of political neutrality. They, weren't, they had no allegiance to anybody. And so a lot of these Protestants, um, and actually Erasmus, who was kind of the other side of the Protestants, was living in Basel at the same time. Um, so he goes there, and at age 26, he publishes his first draft, <laughs> first draft of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, um, which was actually originally intended to be a defense against um, King Francis, who had ordered his arrest. The full title here, I wanted to read you guys the full title of the Institutes because I thought this was fun. Calvin's full title that he sent to the king. The Institute of the Christian Religion, containing almost the whole sum of piety and whatever it is necessary to know in the doctrine of salvation, a work very well worth reading by all persons zealous for piety and lately published, a preface to the most Christian king of France, in which this book is presented to him as a confession of faith. I, don't, I guess they must have just put the title on the front because I don't think it would have fit on the spine. Um, the Institutes became a bestseller as soon as it was released. Um, people were just gobbling it up. Um, and he went on to advise and expand it and uh, change it around all throughout his whole life until finally the last version that he published was in 1559. So first time was in um, 1535. And he kept revising and publishing it until 1559. So that's a, you know, he's working on this for a long time. Now, Basel was a German-speaking town, and Calvin was a Frenchman. And so he had a little trouble and kind of wanted to be back in his, you know, in his own kind of home. So he decided that he would go to Strasbourg, France, to evade arrest. Um... And on kind of a circuitous route to try to get to France from where he was um, in Basel, he went up to Geneva to stay for a night. And, well, William Farrell was in Geneva. William Farrell was a great reformer who had settled there um, in Geneva and kind of was agitating against Rome to try to reform things. But um, he was considered the Elijah of 
of this area. Um, and so, like Elijah, um, had a, Elisha for kind of a helper, Farrell said, hey, here's this young John Calvin who's written this awesome thing called the Institutes, and he's here in my town. And so he begged Calvin to come on and help him um, in his reform. And Calvin definitely resisted him. Um, he was like, no, no, no. My life isn't about going out there and doing things and trying to change the world. I like studying. I like sitting at home, uh, thinking and reading. I don't want to be out there changing everything. But uh, Farrell <laughs> kind of threatened him. And he said, may God condemn your repose and the calm you seek for study. If before such a great need you withdraw and refuse your succor and help. And Calvin later confessed that these words shocked and broke me, and I desisted from the journey I had begun. Um, so Farrell basically convinces Calvin to stay in Geneva, um, and because of that, the church would never be the same. Now, staying in Geneva meant a lot of theological strife. Um, during Calvin's first two years, the city government um, really had a big fight with Calvin and Farrell about whether or not unrepentant sinners should be allowed to stay in communion with the church. Obviously, Calvin said, if they're unrepentant sinners, they're not in the church. They're not the church. They don't need to be part of it. And the church councils, I mean, the city council is like, no, no, no. The city, they're, they are citizens of our town. Therefore, they are members of the church. Um, and so they kicked Calvin out of Geneva which is kind of ironic because if you think about it, Calvin was arguing that the unrepentant sinners should be removed from the church and they removed him from the church. So because of that, he goes to France, just like he had wanted to, uh, with William Farrell, actually, they both went to Strasbourg. Um, and they spent happy three years. Calvin got married, um, kind of adopted a widow's two kids. Um, but in 1541, Geneva sends a letter to Calvin and says, we made a huge mistake. We're really sorry. We need you to come back because things aren't going as well as we'd hoped. And kind of a sense of duty and mission compelled Calvin to go ahead and go back to Geneva uh, to, to finish what he started. And he actually stayed in Geneva for the rest of his life. Um, and this is a cool story. His first Sunday back in Geneva, um, he kind of steps up to his pulpit in the church there in uh, St. Pierre. And his, uh, his listeners sitting in the congregation, fully expected to hear this kind of vindictive, rigorous, um, self-righteous sermon, which was gloating about, you know, I, see, how dare you kick me out of here? You needed me. Um, but he didn't do that. Following the expository example set by guys like Zwingli, Calvin got up to the pulpit and resumed preaching from the exact passage that he had left off three years ago. So this just kind of shows you his submission to the Word of God. So he wasn't going to put his petty, um, upset feelings um, above what he believed needed to be preached, which was the Word. Um, and actually, he he was, a, <laughs> this guy, preaching, teaching, reading, studying, writing. I don't know how he did all of it in his life because, listen to this, he, um, he maintained a preaching schedule for 23 years in Geneva, he preached two sermons from the New Testament every Sunday, one sermon from the Old Testament every day during the week. So he's preaching eight sermons a week for 23 years, 
Yeah. <laughs> and when he wasn't preaching and studying or writing things like the Institutes or commentaries on every book of the Bible, um, he would go and correspond with all kinds of people from kings to, and emperors to uh, imprisoned Protestants. Um, he would counsel others. He was a really busy guy, and he never stopped serving God his whole life. Um, and all of this while he was in acute physical pain. Um, in fact, towards the end of his life, he kind of detailed his catalog of various ailments. He had arthritis, kidney stones, hemorrhoids, fever, nephritis, severe indigestion. And then he said, whatever nourishment I take sticks like paste to my stomach, colic, and ulcers. But he didn't let that affect him. In fact, his last sermon was preached from his pulpit as he was laying on his bed. They carried his bed up behind the pulpit so he could preach his final sermon. So yeah, this guy was hardcore. Under Calvin's um, pastorate in Geneva, every citizen of the town was under the moral discipline of the church. So if you were a citizen of the town, you were within the church. You were, you were part of it. Um, because of that, he still believed that the church was supreme, but the church and state had to work really closely together to create kind of a Christian city. Um, a lot of people have kind of looked back at this and said, this was a bad move. Um, this, this was the wrong way to implement reform because this kind of tried to create almost a, a theocracy where, you know, the church was leading everything and it didn't work. It actually worked pretty well. Um, I mean, I don't know about it, the application of it now or whatever, but in Geneva, this kind of moral compass for the whole of everything uh, really worked well. And they had peace. Um, there was prosperity in Geneva at this time. It seemed to work really well. Um, it had become a haven for oppressed Protestants, so it kind of grew as, as this Protestant community. Um, and because of that... Uh, Calvin and, and the other leaders there were able to send out missionaries to spread the gospel throughout all of Europe and even um, as far as Brazil. There's one unfortunate episode which a lot of critics kind of point to and say, you know, Calvin wasn't any better than anybody else because this guy named Michael Servetus came into Geneva and uh, he was just a troublemaker and he, um, he was preaching against the doctrine of the Trinity. He said the Trinity's not real. Um, there's only one God. Forget about all this stuff. Um, and the leaders there in Geneva basically tried, convicted, and burned Servetus at the stake. And um, we, you know, today we say, well, we have religious liberty, we shouldn't be burning people, and that's exactly what the Catholic Church was doing to the heretics of, you know, like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. So why would they do the exact same thing? Well, on Calvin's kind of, <laughs> as if to make it better, he did argue that the guy should be beheaded instead of burned. He thought that'd be quicker and less painful. Um, but he did agree to the execution. Um, but just keep in mind that we, we shouldn't judge Calvin to a standard that was not his. Let me rephrase that. We shouldn't defend Calvin, but we should not judge him by a historical standard that was not all his own. So at this time, if someone was preaching heresy, you needed to cut that off. You need to make that go away. And in Geneva, they made it go away. Um, next thing, let's see. Uh, 
Um, Calvin's Institutes, coming back to the Institutes here, uh, was widely recognized as the single most influential book of the Protestant Reformation and probably one of the greatest theological works of all time. Um, he also wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible, which are still in print. I have them all. They're great. I use them all the time. Um, but he didn't just pay lip service to the Bible. As you can see, he worked his very best to implement the reform that he was thinking about in Geneva. He actually did it. Um, the Institutes itself, we we'll just kind of talk about a little bit about it. Um, it's divided up into four parts. He, he broke it down and basically to try to follow the line of the um, Apostles' Creed. Um, knowledge of God the Creator, uh, knowledge of God the Redeemer, the way in which we receive the grace of Christ, the benefits and effects, um, and the external means by which God invites us into the society of Christ. That's kind of the way he broke it down. Um, Calvin is often, often kind of caricatured as this, um, as he was only focusing on human sin and God's sovereignty and salvation. We think of the five points of Calvinism, and these five points kind of just outline man is broken, and God is sovereign, and God's sovereign election, choice of salvation. Um, th that's true. Um, his writings do show that. Um, but any fair reading of the Institutes will really show you that it's profoundly concerned with declaring the whole counsel of God for the Christian life. The Institutes of the Christian religion is about how to live a Christian life. And, you know, of course Calvin believed that understanding your salvation, understanding that you were broken and God chose you anyway, was vastly important to living a good Christian life. But it wasn't just that, which shows a real evolution kind of in Calvin's own life, because we remember first off, he was all about thinking. I want to sit back, I want to study, I want to read, I want to pray, and that's it. Um, and here we see that he says, no, no, no. I'm going to write this huge book about, yes, think, yes, read, yes, understand, study the Word of God, but you need to live it. Because he learned when he was in Geneva that he had to live it. He had to actually do things with this gospel. Um, if Luther's foundational question was, what must I do to be saved? Calvin's basic, basic questions were two. Who am I? Who is God? So he really perceived that human nature was, was fallen, but there was this seed of religion, the seed of, um, of worship, in which we all had this need to worship something. Um, he believed it either led to idolatry or worship of self, or it led to piety and worship of God. And that's what the Institutes is really about. Um, so he's, though he is wi widely and rightfully known as um, the guy who really emphasized the sovereignty of God, um, it's not the full picture. He really said that God's sovereignty points to God's majesty and glory. And I'm going to do a quote from him. He says, Although God lacks nothing, still the principal aim he had in creating men was that his name might be glorified in them. And were this not so, what would become of the many evidences of Scripture which tell us that the sovereign aim of our salvation is the glory of God? And he believed that God's glory was manifest most vividly in Christ's work securing our salvation. And so he thought, this is what we need to focus on because 
we're to bring glory to God, and the most, the best way to see His glory is in our salvation. Um, and I'm just going to read this passage here too. Uh, Those who by faith trusted in Christ for their salvation could be sure that God would hold them secure. Uh, this is why Calvin came to focus on God's election in salvation, not as a smug self-satisfaction or arrogant um, arrogance against complacent Christians, but rather out of a pastoral concern to assure anxious Christians God's absolute reliability in saving them. And just who are the elect? Um, but we can't know that for, for certain. Calvin believed that there were three measures which provided helpful guidance for discerning who was saved. Participation in sacraments such as baptism, Lord's Supper, um, upright moral life, and public profession of faith. And really, confess him with your mouth, believe him in your heart, you're baptized, and, and you live it. That's true. That is how we see our salvation. That's how we work out our salvation in life. Um, but this led, because of his emphasis on sovereignty, it led to a great love for the church because it wasn't just about justification like it was for Luther. It was about sanctification. It was about making your life better. It was about refining yourself. It was about allowing God to change you, to work on you, um, and to grow closer, to, to become a better Christian. Um, and he really focused on a holy life, which is why um, in Geneva, he really implemented those political changes because he thought, well, if, if you're going to live a holy life, you can't just live it in the church. You have to live a holy life in the state. You have to live a holy life as your everyday life, doing whatever you're doing as a job. And if you're leading the city council, you should be living a holy life. Um, and so all those things kind of work together to really bring about reform in Geneva, and it, it changed everything. Um, so by the time of Calvin's death in 1564, um, it was clear that the Reformation wasn't just a passing disturbance. This was something that was real, that was changing the landscape of the church, of Christianity, of Europe, really. Um, and so his ideals and doctrines kind of spread throughout Europe. Um, and for decades, um, it eventually spreads throughout Switzerland, Germany, Scandinavia, Netherlands, parts of France, England, Scotland... Uh, those will kind of be focused on next week, but um, eventually, lots of division happens, just like it always does, but still we see um, Christians join together and rejoice that God stayed faithful to his promises, proclaimed the gospel, and preserved his people. So even through division, fights, reformation, and tearing down and building up, um, God preserved his people, and through the Reformation, we see that he actually used this time to lift the gospel back up to the forefront um, and allow the people, the church, um, to begin to read his word again and to study and to understand his message to them um, and to place their faith in Christ alone. So I, I'd urge you to read these um, quotes I have here on your uh, guide. That's some good stuff from Zwingli and Calvin. Um, there's lots of gems out there, but is there any questions about any of this?